Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Wee. Today we'll begin near the dawn of the 20th century, more specifically, northwestern Ontario in the year 1905. This was the year that Treaty No. 9 was enacted. Treaty No. 9 is the agreement to share the land of the North. It is a controversial document, however, because its meaning isn't universally accepted. In other words, there are different interpretations of the meaning of the document. And it is possible the document has had dubious signatories. The beginning of the 20th century was the time of Canadian expansion and mineral resource extraction. In the early 1900s, Anishinaabe people faced a real threat of cultural genocide. The consistent and increasing attempts at cultural genocide can be traced to the early days of the Western expansion of Europeans and the consequent displacement of the native peoples of what is now known as North America. Winning the West required acts of government, such as the Indian Removal Act, to make room for settlers who traversed the Oregon Trail to participate in the gold rush. The Indian Removal Act was officially enacted in 1830, but the forced removal of native peoples in the Americas was already underway. The forcibly removed native peoples were forced westward along what is known as the Trail of Tears. It was a continental attempt at eradicating indigenous populations. Decades later, leaders like Sitting Bull and Louis Riel resisted the destruction of their traditional way of life and of the buffalo by the Americans. But the wars and diseases and eventual extirpation of the buffalo spelled doom for the native peoples on both sides of the medicine line. It is in this environment that many treaties were being signed. But even into the 1900s, treaties in Canada were still being signed, and many Canadian legislations were enacted that directly and negatively impacted Aboriginal people. Today we're talking about something else that happened in 1905, a change in the Indian Act that further oppressed Native people. In 1905, in Canada, the Indian Act was already in place. What changed in the Indian Act in that year 1905 was an amendment that allowed for the removal of Aboriginal people from reserves near Canadian towns that had a population of 8,000 or more. This was followed up in 1911 by an amendment to the Indian Act that, among other things, gave power to Canada to even move an entire reserve away from a municipality if it was expedient to Euro-Canadian infrastructure. Think about that for a moment. In Canada, in 1905, a law was enacted that allowed for the removal of Aboriginal people from even being near Canadian towns with large populations of European people. In other words, in Canadian towns with European populations of 8,000 people, a Canadian law said it was okay to physically remove natives from the town. The pass system was already in place at this time. How many towns in Canada in 1905 had official populations of at least 8,000 people? For comparison, consider the town of Cobalt, established in 1903 after silver was discovered there, or perhaps Kenora, which was growing at that time. Of course, Thunder Bay also was a hub to the northwest. Cobalt was a silver boom town. At its peak, about 10,000 people lived there. They were attracted by jobs made possible from silver mining. 
So at its peak, Cobalt would have had the governmental authority to remove native people from town limits. Like all boom towns, Cobalt went through a decline and now has a very small population. Thunder Bay has had a different growth pattern than Cobalt. Thunder Bay was a shipping hub and it also became a train hub. As a train hub between the prairies and the St. Lawrence Seaway, Thunder Bay was an important strategic location for the western expansion of Europeans into the native wilderness. But what about the native people? It is important to understand that Thunder Bay became the means of getting Canadian soldiers to the Red River Rebellion to quash the uprising. That was in 1885. By 1918, Thunder Bay had a population of 30,000 inhabitants. Winnipeg was also growing. It is important to know that at about this time, the beginning of the 1900s, many residential schools were also being established where none had previously been. It is important to realize that Aboriginal families were increasingly being forced to send their children to European-style schools, that is, the residential schools. By the 1920s, attendance was compulsory, and if you didn't send your kids to school, the authorities would come and take them. The schools were meant to act like factories, where savage children entered, but refined gentlemen exited. But we're not going to focus on residential schools in this episode, because the damaging effects of residential schools has already been established in the academic literature and in the courts. Right now we will focus on jobs, because jobs are the foundation of economies. While the need for jobs themselves is always ongoing, types of jobs will shift over the years. Why is this important to Anishinaabe history? For the basic reason that Aboriginal people were purposefully left out of the burgeoning Canadian economy of the early 20th century, and the effects of such policies and actions are still being seen and felt as we progress through the 21st century. Think of it this way. Imagine trying to start a business, but you're not allowed to be in town. Not your business. You. You're not allowed to use modern technology. This prohibition against the use of mechanized farm equipment was officially in effect from 1889 to 1897. It was called the Peasant Farm Policy. Imagine you're also not allowed to sell the products of your efforts because there are laws against that. Some of these laws were not extinguished until the 1980s and 1990s. Furthermore, imagine you require permission from a government agent to legally leave your officially circumscribed area to hunt, trap, work, or visit your children at school. How successful do you think your economy would be under these circumstances? In 1905, the year Treaty No. 9 was first enacted with the first signatories, such hurdles were in place specifically to exclude Native people from participating equally in the wider economy. Yet a few years earlier, just west of Winnipeg, the oldest Ford dealership in Manitoba first opened as a family-owned garage in 1900. Yes, it's hard work starting and operating a business, but imagine having all authorities rally to shut you down and undermine you. Yes, all authorities. From the top of government, to the Indian agents, to the police, to the school teachers, all authorities were actively engaged in destroying the Anishinaabe way of life. Many of these laws weren't rescinded until the 1950s or even later. It has taken decades and multiple generations for Aboriginal people to scramble up the hill of obstacles to finally begin to participate on an even playing field. 
That's all for today's podcast, but stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast. <laughs>